Good evening, church. Nice to see everybody this this evening. I was like Jim; he jinxed me. I'm, trying, I'm thinking morning. I'm thinking morning, and, and no, it's evening. It's evening. Yes, there it is. So um, today we're going to be studying from the Book of Acts. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter five, so we can be ready to dig into God's Word. And uh, as we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this study. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for today. We thank you for um, giving us your word and allowing us to be able to come and to read it, to study it, to, to learn from it, to gain wisdom, insight. Lord, it's just such a privilege to be able to uh, hear from you, Lord. And Lord, may you speak to us tonight. May you, um, may you open up our hearts so that we receive the message that you have for everyone, not, not me, not, not, not my words, but your words, Lord. Let your will be done in this place tonight. I thank you, Lord, for, for the congregation, all the people that are here, Father. Uh, may you bless them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the title of the message that I have put together this evening is Allegiant. And like I said, we're going to be studying... Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. So, as you probably know, across America, every weekday morning, uh, it begins with children standing up and, and directing themselves toward the red, white, and blue flag, and they recite the Pledge of Allegiance with their hands on their heart, right? Um, this is something that I'm sure many in this room have uh, have done something they can relate to, uh, something that you experienced while you were growing up and going through school. I remember doing this as a student, uh, a little kid, elementary level, all the way to high school. And now that I'm a an adult, uh, I still get to join the fun because I'm a I'm a teacher at a Christian private school, and we get to start each morning with with that same pledge of allegiance. Um, I don't know how the the homeschool crowd does this. Um, I, I don't know if they join in on the action every morning. I, I don't think my wife drags our sleepy teenager up every morning to, to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag in his pajamas. I, uh, maybe you want to try that, see how that goes over. <laughs> or not. So when we recite, or when I remember reciting, and, and, and it can be something that is it's rote, it's, it's automatic, you, you say it without even thinking, and it's, it's robotic even, right? Because we learn it from such a young age that uh, we learn it and we can spit out the words even before we have the capability of digesting what those words mean, before we are aware of what we're actually pledging allegiance to. It's like when you uh, click on that little thing on, on the website that says, I have read the terms and agree to the terms and conditions, that button on there. And uh, so, you know, kids have no idea what they're getting themselves into when they pledge allegiance. But so let's break down, let's break down the phrase. Um, the words pledge of allegiance, first we have pledge, which simply means to promise, right? A pledge is a promise. Uh, the word allegiance means loyalty or commitment. So when a person pledges allegiance to the flag, he is promising to be loyal to not a piece of cloth with, with stars and stripes on it, but um, to the nation that is symbolized by that piece of cloth, right? 
So this is where I got my idea for, for today's message. We're playing off of this uh, idea of, of pledging allegiance. And the point of my message is to show that, uh, th that we as Christians need to be allegiant. And our allegiance should be to, of course, Jesus Christ our Lord, above anything else, above our country, anything. So usually on Thursdays, I'm over in the other room. Many of you know that. And um, our youth group has been going through the book of Acts. So anytime I come up here, I'll probably be talking about Acts. You, you, want, you, you can bookmark your Bible if you want to. Um, so we've been learning a lot, and I've been learning a lot as I lead the study uh, about Peter and John. We're not, we're not very far deep into the book yet, uh, only fifth chapter so far. Uh, but as you read through it, if you've ever read through it, and it, you, you probably uh, get this sense of amazement at what the disciples, the apostles, uh, did after Jesus went up to heaven. Um, they, they were unswerving. They were Holy Spirit-empowered, and they had this commitment to Christ that no force was mighty enough to cause them to back down. There was no enemy scary enough to make them run away. And they were unflinching when standing before men with power and authority. And these guys could, could do some damage to them. They could send them to prison. They could have them beaten. Even worse than that, you saw what happened uh, to, to Jesus himself, right? So they were allegiant when everything said not to be. When everything said, go home and forget about this. When the odds were against this movement called Christianity surviving past the first generation. So the odds were against it, but guess what? Our God is not a God of the odds, right? He is a God whose specialty is the impossible. And he tells us to have faith. He tells us, be allegiant. So the allegiance that the apostles showed, and as we read this, let that be an example to us in our lives. So in studying the passage, we're going to note how the apostles pledge allegiance, not with just their words, but with their actions. They boldly choose obedience to God rather than to man. Even when the threat, when the threat against them was severe. As we look closely at the passage, we will see that the result of their allegiance is the proclamation of liberty, freedom, forgiveness of sins. So without further ado, let's, let's go ahead and read our uh, passage. It's going to be uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. It says, When the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police 
And the chief priests heard these things. They were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So as we look closely at this passage, um, the first thing we want to look at is the Apostles' Pledge of Allegiance, right? Promises or pledges are made with words, but they are kept with actions. It's one thing to say, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus, and it's quite another thing to actually be a Christian and actually follow Jesus. So it's something that I've noticed that there's this pandemic almost plaguing our country that's worse than COVID, and it's called nominal Christianity. That is, many people claim to be under the banner of Christ, but there is little evidence of this claim being true. Their own lives testify against them. They're like the fact checkers, and the fact checkers have determined that the claim is false. But that's not the case here with the apostles that we read about in in Acts. Their pledge is backed up with actions. Let's read again verses 19 and 20 and also verse 25, which says, But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple, and tell the people all about this life. And then we see later in verse 25, Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So we want to focus on the fact that they went to the temple, right? The main thing to focus on here is the instruction that was given to the apostles, go to the temple. Mind you, these men were arrested and put in a public jail because of the ruckus that they caused by preaching the gospel, right? They caused a commotion just by teaching about Jesus. So this is a side note I want to make here before we get any further, that if you're preaching the gospel, if you're teaching about Jesus, if you're telling people about our Savior, um, it's going to cause a ruckus. It's going to cause commotion. It's going to cause a reaction from people. Truth has a way of provoking strong reactions from the people who are opposed to it. The text in Acts tells us that jealousy was the root motivation for the high priest and the, and the Sadducees wanting the apostles out of the picture. So if you think about it, this jealousy, and, and, and jealousy in general, right, is, is desiring uh, to ascend to the top, and, and it's, kind of, it's, it's a lot like Satan himself, right, who desired to ascend to the top. It's desiring to be worshipped 
and admired by the masses. It's desiring to be God, even if it means stepping on people to get to the top. So however this, this manifests itself, you, we have jealousy, we have anger, and you can think of a bunch of ways that this could show itself. Um, it, it's just evidence of the wickedness of the heart of man, right? And um, if we think about Galatians, usually you, you think about that list of the fruits of the Spirit, but Galatians also has a kind of a reverse of that list. In, in chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, it talks about this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're thinking back to the high priest, right? He could probably check off a few of those boxes, right? And he throws the apostles in the jail cell. And he's, he's probably thinking that he's won, right? That he's, he's gotten rid of a problem, at least for a little while, right? But little did he know what was going to happen that night. There's no way to predict that, right? Uh, turning back to, there we go, there it is. Um, it says that uh, the angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. Okay, so now imagine you're, you're in that situation, right? And you're somehow get thrown in jail. I don't know what you did, but you're in jail. And uh, suddenly the doors are, are flung wide open during the night and there's no one around. The guards occupied. I don't know what they're doing, but you could just walk right out. So the question is, what do you do? What would you do in that situation? A natural human inclination, I think, would be to run as fast as you can and go hide somewhere, right? I, that's, I think that's what I would do, right? Go run and hide. Uh, because undoubtedly, the, the prisoner's absence would be noticed, right? It even says in the text, they, 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 where are these guys? They noticed that they weren't there. Uh, then they would have some sort of manhunt to find these prisoners, right? And unless you find a safe place to hide until the heat dies down, uh, you're, gonna, you're probably going to get recaptured, right? And be in worse trouble than what you started. Um, speaking for myself, I would probably do that. I would probably run and, and, and try to lay low as long as possible. And, but while, while that's happening, I'm paranoid, right? I hear a sound and, and, and I get startled, right? He, bump, a shadow. It's somebody coming to get me, right? To drag me back to jail. So as we saw from reading the text, this was not what the apostles did, right? They didn't go run and hide. Um, what did they do? Rather than going on the lamb, they head directly to the temple at daybreak, okay? This is a counterintuitive move, right? Like I said, naturally we want to run, we want to hide, we want to avoid trouble, but they march right into trouble, right? They go to a very public place and they draw attention to themselves by doing the exact thing that got them in trouble in the first place, right? And then we read that the, the astonished report in verse 25 that um, some guy goes to the high priest and he tells him the men that he had thrown in jail are out and they're over in the temple 
teaching the people. So I'm the high priest. I'm like, what? First of all, how in the world did they get out in the first place? How did that happen? And second, if they got out, why in the world would they be in the temple of all places for everyone to see? This, this definitely baffled them, right? It even said in the text, it baffled them, use that word. It, it baffled the high priests and the Sadducees because for them, the move made no sense, right? And if I'm one of the apostles and the angel's telling me, go over there and be in front of everyone so you can get in trouble again, right? To me, okay, I'll do it, but that doesn't make sense to me, right? But think about, as we read scripture, all the things that didn't make sense, right? It's Moses and the burning bush, right? When God says, go to, my, go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And what, is, what does Moses say? He says, Lord, I'm, I'm like the worst possible person in the world to choose to go to Egypt to rescue your people. The Pharaoh won't listen to me. The, your people won't listen to me. So this doesn't make any sense. Also think about Gideon, right? He's got his army, and he's facing the Midianites, which is an army. If I remember the map, it, it, they have them at least two to one, right? And then God says to send home almost the entire army, right? And, and Gideon's probably thinking, Lord, we're, we were outgunned to begin with, and you want me to fight the enemy with only 300 guys? That, that doesn't make sense, Right? And then, of course, we think about Abraham, right? Remember that scene where he's brought out and he is directed to the night sky, right? He's looking up at the night sky and, and he, he's got to be thinking, um, Lord, I don't even have one descendant and you're telling me to count the stars. That doesn't make any sense, right? So oftentimes we see in the Bible, we see in our own lives, really, that God's ways don't make sense to our human brains. So this is where we need to trust and obey. Just like all the men we read about, doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust you and I will obey. This is where we need to be allegiant. So the apostles, they were being obedient. They were following the orders and they were showing their allegiance. The text tells us that they were instructed by the angel to open the doors uh, to the jail. So notice the verbs in this passage, three verbs I want to focus on, go, stand, and teach. So the first, go. It reminds me of when God is calling Isaiah to prophesy to his people. This can be found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, this is Isaiah, here I am send me. So God is inquiring about who he should send to go take the message to the people. And Isaiah raises his hand, pick me, pick me, right? God tells Isaiah, you know what? This is going to be a difficult task because the people, they're not going to cooperate. And, you know, to, to be honest, isn't this the case of any person who attempts to reach the lost with the gospel? It's a very difficult task. People are not going to cooperate. By nature, they are opposed to hearing anything about God. And, and any person who wants to get involved of, in, into ministry of almost any kind, right, 
you have a difficult task. Okay? So for Isaiah, God was handing him an incredibly difficult job to do. And Isaiah, without hesitation, is like, challenge accepted. I'll do it. So what if we had a response like that every time God said, go, do this, right? What if our first reaction every time was, pick me? What if every time God told us to do something, we challenge, accept it, I will do it, no matter how difficult God. So I'm not saying we should, like, jump the gun and, and we just forget about, you know, seeking the Lord and, and, and praying to him earnestly when we have important decisions to make. I'm not saying we don't do those things, right? But also we shouldn't wait around and, and act like we can't do anything unless we see a sign from heaven like a double rainbow or shooting star or we have a dream, like a weird dream that, mean, that has, has to mean something, right? Like we shouldn't wait for that before we agree to be obedient to God, right? We shouldn't expect uh, one of these Isaiah-style visions of the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up before we put ourselves out there to be used by God for ministry. So my advice, just go, just do it. Returning to uh, the verses in Acts that we were looking at, um, we see that we see the second instruction, which is stand. Have that? Yeah, got that. Um, so stand. We, when we as believers stand, it's not a feeble, weak need attempt. We're not shaking, right? We're not ready to fall over if the wind you know, hits us just right. We're not going to fall over easily, okay? We're not standing like it's the morning after leg day at the gym. No, that, that's not us, right? We're, we're not on sinking sand, but we stand firm on Christ, the solid rock, okay? Recall Paul's instructions to the Ephesians church, the famous armor of God passage. Sure, we've read it multiple times, right? Paul instructs the Christians to put on the full armor of God to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the devil is going to lob his fiery darts at us. He's going to do that, right? But we have the ability to stand and take it. We've got that shield of faith, right? We're standing strong in the power of God. So we can do that, right? And that's what we see in the passage with, with the apostles in, in Acts. On that morning, they stood firm in the temple. And they were ready for whatever was going to be thrown at them. Fiery darts, whatever, whatever was going to be thrown at them, they were ready and they were going to stand. And the final instruction that we're going to see here is teach. Teach. So perhaps you're thinking, who am I to teach? I'm no pastor. I can barely find my way around the Bible. I'm just a... Uh, and then fill in the blank. Right? We've all had those excuses, all those, those things go through our heads, right? And I could think, personally, I could think of a million reasons why I can't teach, right? Even though I'm up here and, and I'm teaching, you know, I can think of many reasons why I shouldn't be, or why it was a bad idea. I, I, can, I can do a Moses and like, no, Lord, somebody else. Uh, but here's one very good reason to do this. Obedience, allegiance, right? I would, I would argue that any one of us, any one of us, can be used by God to speak truth to another person. I'm not saying you have to stand up here and be a pastor or deliver a sermon. I'm not saying you have to lead a Bible study. I'm not saying you have to go uh, teach the children in children's church. Although if you want to do that, 
if you want it, you can do that. Just see me after service, and I'll, I'll be glad to, to get you set up on that. Uh, yeah, we need teachers all the time. So, um, But I'm not saying you have to do those things, right? Uh, any of us can be used by God. All it takes is a willing heart. Um, all those apostles that we were reading about that were standing in the temple and teaching, they were just ordinary guys. They were just ordinary dudes, right? But they were ordinary dudes who were empowered by the Spirit of God. And that makes a big difference, right? So maybe you're just an ordinary dude, or maybe you're an ordinary woman, right? If you have the Spirit of God living in you, that makes a big difference. And it's enough to make you able to speak truth, to teach another person something, even if it's just a tiny nugget of truth. So it should motivate us, right? Christian, learn as much as you can. Learn all you can so that you can share truth with others. It's, it's not, you don't, you don't just keep it to yourself. Make yourself smart. No, this is designed to absorb and to reach out to people, right? So you can share with others. You can share with your family. You can share with coworkers, your friends, or even your enemies if that's what it takes, right? Every Christian has this responsibility, every single one. So thinking back to the apostles, what would be the point of the apostles going to the temple and standing in the temple if they weren't going to do anything, if they were just going to stand there, if they were just going to hang out and say nothing? What would be the point of that? So the next part I want to focus on is... Um, the, the authority of God. We are under God. A Christian's highest authority is none other than God Almighty, right? God makes the rules, and we obey them. It's really just as simple as that. This authority supersedes any human authority on earth. I'm talking boss at work. I'm talking about pastor at church, uh, even spouse at home, even that, right? And, and even president in Washington, D.C., we are under God, and our loyalty, our allegiance, is to him first and foremost. So the apostles faced a dilemma in the passage we were reading. Um, either obey God or obey, obey man. But for them, that, it wasn't really a dilemma at all, right? It was really a no-brainer. It was an easy call. So let's look at verses 28 and 29 uh, of, of the chapter, and we see this. This is the high priest. Didn't we strictly order you? not to teach in this name. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. So notice that, uh, that phrase right there, strictly ordered. Right? That's what I fo want to focus on here. So the apostles are caught red-handed, right? They're in the temple, and then they are escorted back to the high priest, right? So here we go again, standing before the high priest. And in the reaction, as we read it, of the high priest, it sounds like an angry parent scolding a wayward child for uh, a repeated misbehavior, right? If you're a parent, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Didn't I tell you to stop doing that? I told you to stop. Weren't you listening? I strictly ordered you. I even put you in timeout. And you still did it? Don't you know what strictly ordered means? Right? Sounds... Sounds like a parent to a kid. Um, however, the strict orders, however strict they were, however strict they might have been, uh, nothing can trump the orders the apostles received from God himself. So if we flip back a chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 4, we're going to read about the first time this sort of thing happens 
to the apostles where they get these strict orders from a high and mighty guy and they're told to stop teaching about Jesus. And here's the reply that Peter and John give. Acts uh, 4, 19 and 20 say, um, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So note here, Peter and John, their answer indicates that on top of having no desire to listen to the, the guys that are saying to obey them rather than God, they, they, they say that they don't have an ability to listen to them over God, that they are unable to stop telling people about Jesus. I think that's a great attitude to have. And they are unable to stop telling people about Jesus. They, they won't stop because they can't stop. So going back to the passage we're studying, we see, we see something similar, right? Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Again, Peter indicates that his obedience to God is not just an option among several other viable options for him, right? It's, he says that he must obey God rather than man. He has to and he cannot do otherwise. Uh, if, you, if you know this, this famous quote by Martin Luther, it kind of reminded me of that. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. And in turn, because they must obey God, this, this means for Peter and the apostles that they must defy the strict orders against teaching about Jesus. They have to defy these orders because they're in conflict. And this reminds me of, of Daniel's friends. If you remember reading Old Testament stories about uh, in the book of Daniel, we have three young men and they defied the king's strict orders, they're pretty strict, to bow down and worship a golden statue or else what? They'd be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? And then Daniel himself, remember, we are told he defied strict orders not to pray to God or else he would be thrown to the lion's den, right? They like to throw people into places back then, I guess, as punishment. Um, and, and if you read Daniel, I, I love how it says that when, when Daniel went to pray, uh, he defied the king's orders openly, right? He didn't go you know, into the corner of his room, into a closet, and, and hide himself under a blanket. He didn't do that. He situated himself in front of a window, and he prayed three times a day so that everybody could see. Okay? So you, you might notice the similarity to the situation that we're reading about. Um, the apostles are caught openly teaching in the temple and not even trying to hide their defiance, right? Not even trying. And the def so defiance done in secret isn't really much defiance, is it? And um, so that leads us to the topic of, of obedience, obedience to God, right? Uh, obedience to God uh, for those who claim allegiance to him is no less mandatory than it was for Daniel, for his friends, and for the apostles. So that, again, that applies to us as well, obedience to God. Uh, we as Christians, we are God's people, and we should have the same exact mentality as the men we re read about in Scripture. Okay, We cannot but follow him and obey him. We cannot help but to live lives of holiness, pleasing to the Father. The Bible makes it clear that those who love God will do what? Will keep his commandments. Those who love him will desire to live holy lives. So I found a quote by A.W. Tozer on the subject of holy, holy living. 
And this is what he says. He says, many believers... Oh, wait, I got a picture of him too. There you go. Many believers in our day seem con to consider the expression of cr true Christian holiness to be just a matter of personal option. I've looked it over and considered it, but I don't buy it. But the Apostle Peter clearly exhorts every Christian to holiness of life and conversation. God's children ought to be holy because God himself is holy. I am of the opinion that New Testament Christians do not have the privilege of ignoring such apostolic injunctions. Can't ignore it. There is something basically wrong with our Christianity and our spirituality if we can carelessly presume that if we do not like a biblical doctrine and choose to ignore it, then there is no harm done. God has never instructed us that we should weigh his desires for us and his commandments to us in the balance of our own judgments and then decide what we want to do about them. We have the power within us to reject God's instruction, but where else shall we go? If we turn away from the authority of God's word, to whose authority, authority do we yield? So that's, that's, that's a good question, right? question I would ask myself and anybody else. Whose authority do you yield? I would like to encourage you to ask yourself this question. To whose authority do you yield? In, in the Bible, is it the Bible? Is it God's word? Is that your authority? To paraphrase Peter's words in John chapter 6, here are the words of life, the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Sadly, there are many places people would rather go. Some turn on the TV and watch CNN, or they go to the internet fact checkers. Some look to the government. For some, it's a Hollywood celebrity that's their hero, which, you know, personally I can't, can't understand that, right? You know, why, why in the world do the, the opinions and words of singers and actors and sports stars uh, have so much weight for people, right? Especially when you consider that, you know, 90% of the time those people's personal lives are, are a mess, right? So why, why would we listen to them, okay? Um, some think they're on the right track and, and think it's a good idea if we, if we follow that famous pastor that, that you see on the TV and they, they got that book out that everybody's reading and talking about. Um, but the truth is, men and women will fail. Their words will fail. And if the past few years have proven anything, uh, it's that man is fallible. Even the best and brightest of them, even the biggest and most powerful of them, the most famous of them, even the smoothest talkers among them, all of them fail. But do you know what will never fail? Not even in 10,000 years from now will fail? It's, it's the word of God. So if, if we're thinking about this logically, logically speaking, it only makes sense to read the Bible, to read it and obey it. Logically speaking, it's the only sure way to go. Logically speaking, the word of God is the only lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. So, and we read it, and we learn from it. And when we do these things, we, we find out about the life that God has for us in Christ. So this, this last part, I want to focus on um, the message of the gospel, which brings liberty 
for those who are in Christ. That there's freedom for those who are allegiant to him. This is a message that says that the one who the Son sets free is free indeed. This is a message that says that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That the chains of sin that once shackled us have been broken forever. So going back to the text, we read uh, verses 20 and then 30 through 32, where the angel says, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. And then verse 30 and 32 is them telling the people about this life. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you have murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So I want to focus on, on, on the angel's instruction to tell people about this life. Right? The angel tells them, tell the people all about this life, this life in Christ, this abundant life, this life of liberty, this life of freedom from sin, this eternal life. So I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon. I've got a picture of him too. There it is. Uh, as, he, uh, as he comments on uh, Colossians 3, 4, and it's a verse, it, it simply reads, Christ who is our life. And if, you, if you've ever read Spurgeon, he can take uh, half a sentence and, and create a, a beautiful description, beautiful explanation, right? So here's, here's what he said. Uh, Paul marvelously, 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 goodness, I can't even say that. Rich expression indicates that Christ is the source of our life. You he hath quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. That same voice which brought Lazarus out of the tomb raised us to newness and life. He is now the substance of our spiritual life. It is by his life that we live. He is in us, the hope of glory, the spring of our actions, the central thought which moves every other thought. Christ is our sustenance, is the sustenance of our life. What can the Christian feed upon but Christ's flesh and blood? This is the bread which cometh down from heaven. Amen that a man may eat thereof and not die. Oh, wayworn pilgrims in this wilderness of sin, you never get a morsel to satisfy the hunger of your spirits except you find it in him. Christ is the solace of our life. All our true joys come from him. And in times of trouble, his presence is our consolation. There is nothing worth living for but him, and his loving kindness is better than life. Christ is the object of our life. As speeds the ship toward the port, so hastens the believers the believer towards the haven of his savior's bosom. As flies the arrow to its goal, so flies the Christian toward the perfecting of his fellowship with Christ Jesus. As the soldier fights for his captain and is crowned in his captain's victory, so the believer contends for Christ and gets his triumph out of the triumphs of his master. For him to live is Christ. Christ is the exemplar of our life. Where there is the same life within, 
there will, there must be, to a greater extent, the same developments without. And if we live in near fellowship with the Lord Jesus, we shall grow like him. We shall set him before us as our divine copy, and we shall seek to tread in his footsteps until he shall become the crown of our life in glory. Oh, how safe, how honored, how happy is the Christian since Christ is our life. So I know that was a lot, so here's a quick rundown of what he wrote. Christ is the source of our life as he raises, us, raises up dead men and women, dead in sin to newness of life. Christ is the sustenance of our life, the substance of our life, the solace of our life. I thought he was going to keep alliterating, but he didn't. The object of our life, the exemplar of our life, and the crown of our life. And this life is a life that is available to any man or woman, rich or poor, young or old. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter how tall you are. Doesn't matter who you are. Anyone who would trust in Jesus as Savior. In Romans, I'm sure everybody knows this verse well, Paul writes that though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Master, the one to whom we are allegiant. So this is the apostles. This is the life that they were telling people about as they taught in the temple. This is the life that we need to tell people about. Who can you tell about this life? So in, in our youth group, when I'm over there teaching, my goal is to tell the young people, the young people who are in there, all about this life. I want them to know it, right? I, I tell them, look, the, the world is full of things that glitter. Right? We know what they say about things that glitter, right? Uh, and it's, it's very easy to get distracted. Distractions are all around us, right? Especially when you're a teenager and, you know, you got, you know, the, the, the social media, you got um, the, the peer pressure, you, you've got, um, you know, the, the cool MCU movies. I don't know what those are. Um, but that's, that's the things that, that can distract, right? You know, it's easy to go along with the crowd and to do what the cool kids are doing, right? But it's hard to be in the world, but not of the world. It's hard for the young person with, like I said, the peer pressure, the social media, you know, all those things. Um, but what they need to know, what they need to understand is that these things that they think are cool and everybody is saying, you got to have, you got to do, all those things are passing away. That's what the Bible says. Things of this world are passing away. And then what? When those things are gone, what is left? So I'm going to quote Spurgeon, a shorter one this time. He says, I believe that the one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. That one's, that one's convicting. And he wrote this like, what, 200 years ago? Whenever he was alive. I don't know the exact dates, but he wrote this way back. And, and it's no less true. It's more true today, I would say. So, but let that not be said of us here, right? Not, let that not be said of this church, right? Okay, so what we need to do as a church, we need to, like the apostles were, were instructed, go and stand and teach, right? Go out there and change the world for Jesus. Uh, the, in, in the last part of the, uh, 
uh, passage from, from earlier, uh, verses 30 to 32, we have Peter and the apostles teaching the people that Christ came to give what? Repentance and forgiveness of sin. Like this is all what it's all about, right? And um, uh, this echoes Christ's own words as he's uh, walking with, with some disciples who don't know who he is at that moment. Um, they're walking to Emmaus. Emmaus. And uh, in, in Luke 24, verses 46 through 48, it says this. He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in the name of all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So I turn to you, church, and I tell you that you are also witnesses, right? And your task is to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins in his name to all the nations. But you got to begin somewhere, right? It's like Jesus said, beginning in Jerusalem. We, we begin in our own household. We begin in our neighborhoods. We can begin in our, our workplace. We just got to just got to do it, right? So just to kind of sum up, let, let us each and every day pledge our allegiance to Christ. Let us live our lives under God, under his authority, obeying him and submitting to his authority. And let us proclaim liberty to all that there is repentance, that there is forgiveness of sin in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to, to just read and, and, and take in and, and um, not just to keep in here, but Lord, to go and do, to do with it, Lord. And, and I ask you, Lord, what, what do I do with this? I hope, I hope every one of us asks, what, what do I do, that, do with this? Lord, your, your word is, is living, it's active, it's, it's useful for uh, teaching and, and rebuking and correction and training us in righteousness, Lord. And, um, and just thank you, Lord that um, what we read is so applicable to us in our lives, in our situations, Lord. So I pray for, for strength. I pray for courage. I pray, Lord, that we can um, be completely loyal, devoted, allegiant to you in all that we do, Lord, that we would um, desire above all else to follow Jesus wherever that may take us, that we would... Um, have the, the boldness to, to, to go, to stand, and to tell the world about Jesus. Lord, I thank you for um, just your word giving us that uh, reminder and for showing us and for teaching us and for blessing us with wisdom, Lord. And as we leave here, Lord, I pray for uh, safe travels back home for everybody. And I, I, I pray that um, uh, we would uh, just carry your word in our hearts wherever we go, Lord. Back home to work tomorrow, wherever we may be, Lord, that we would be witnesses, that we would be your witnesses wherever we go. Since it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.